0: Have you ever wondered if we are alone in the universe? Is there any scientific evidence showing that an intelligent designer created the heavens and the earth? Welcome to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570 and 910. You may have heard about the debate over intelligent design and Darwinism. Find out what the evidence says about the origin of life and mankind, and just what the experts are saying. Darwin or Design, brought to you by the C.S. Lewis Society. Now your host, the author of Doubts About Darwin and Darwin Strikes Back, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College in Trinity, Florida, Dr. Tom Woodward.
1: Welcome to Darwin or Design, a program that explores the edge between science and the Christian faith and brings in many side issues and topics of Christian apologetics and how we think about our faith in a real God who really exists and is the creator of the universe and Christ the Redeemer. And I'm Tom Woodward. I'm your host each week. I'm a professor at Trinity College of Florida up in the north end of Tampa Bay, and I'm teaching in the area of systematic theology History and Rhetoric of Science and Apologetics. And I wanted to thank my co-pilot of this program, Bill Carl, the technical producer. Thank you so much, Bill, for making this program possible and for sitting there so faithfully as my, as a were, student. I'm tutoring week by week.
2: Well, I just feel like I'm getting uh, the benefit of uh, being a fly on the wall, as it were. And I have to say, Doctor Woodward, now knowing you for almost six months, you're, you're kind of ascending in my view. You're starting to get a little rock star status based on some of the company that you're bringing to the show. I'm beginning to second to see what a okay. what a big deal you are. Uh, rock star status. Now you have yeah. to clarify that. Well, you're just like you. Uh, you know, again, I mean, well, some we- of the guests that I managed to wangle. <laughs> well, exactly. That's what I'm saying. You, okay. you really, you know, you're getting so many good gets and I'm just like, wow, okay. Dr. Okay. Woodward really knows these guys. Well, so, yeah. I'll have to
1: stand up here and do my uh, my imitation, my uh, Ringo Starr, George Harrison. <laughs> I Actually, the funny thing, Bill, is that I have uh, on some occasions when I've attended concerts, uh, the, the singer or the, the performer has actually spotted me, usually sitting in the second or third row of the audience with my wife and I like to get there early. And on like four occasions, they've spotted me and they've pulled me out of the audience audience and either put a wig on me and told me to do an Elvis imitation or something crazy like that so, wow. so there's a little bit
2: it's almost scary
1: when you when you talk about that uh, well that remind
2: part. me next concert to get a seat next to you I want to be that's part right of
1: that. yeah I'll do my best so but we are excited to be able to bring to you uh, cutting-edge information so it's a really a special treat for me to have on the program today from his home in Downers Grove area I guess the North Chicago area in Illinois the author and the speaker campus speaker apologist James Sire Dr. Jim Sire welcome to our program
3: Oh I'm I'm sorry Tom I'm John Lennon speaking from the neighbors <laughs> <Lenders> next door <laughs>
1: Wait, this isn't the metaphysical show. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> well that sounds like a lot a lot like Dr. James Sire as I as I know Jim Sire to sound like at least <laughs> Oh shuck. <laughs> Your invitation needs some work there. <laughs> well hey, you know, let me just ch- let me bring some humor in. It's kind of a it's always fun to bring a light side to apologetics because it tends to be kind of a heady intellectual, you know, type of topic to to dive into. But you I know from emails and chats that we've had Even though you're an author of so many books, and I hate to say, I don't know them all, but I know that you, of course, are author of the wonderful book that I've been recommending to everybody as the most important apologetics book that you can ever own, and that's The Universe Next Door. And, of course, you've written so many other books. But what I love about Jim Sire is that you go and you actually interact with your friends at starbucks now this is not a paid starbucks commercial but i think that's really tremendous now tell us a little bit about how you got into i mean how long have you been doing starbucks interaction with uh, your friends and your discussion discussion partners tell us a little bit about how you got into that
3: well it's been a number of years and the group that uh I was involved with for a few of those years, have sort of disbanded. And right now, I have maybe just two or three or four people who occasionally show up. But it became a, a sort of a natural result of going to Starbucks for coffee and uh, having a neighbor who is also a believer. Who knew me from uh, that connection, and we got to chatting about things. And people started to come around the edges of us. And uh, we, uh, at one time, we had a really quite a good group of of folk who would uh, chat about a variety of things. And when uh, something religious came up or something Christian came up, then uh, it was an opportunity to to uh, spark further discussion in that area.
1: Wow! And so the the uh, presentation. And the living out, I might say, of Christ, the presentation of faith in Christ and the living out of your Christian faith has been something that's really led you into other lives, and and I, I really appreciate that, and I, I want to recognize that, and, and thank you for setting a, an example to us. And uh, we, we really want to go right in quickly to the first book that really we have been talking about on the program recently. We try to highlight it every opportunity we get, and that is Your Universe your book, The Universe Next Door, which uh, I I believe is in, is it in its fourth edition? It's
3: in its fourth edition, yes. Mm -hmm.
1: And that fourth edition is is just, you know, fantastic. I'm actually using it in a course that I'm teaching on Monday nights here, starting the end of January at uh, Idlewild Baptist Church. And so The Universe Next Door is a book, not not so much about the physical data of the universe, but it's about the universe of worldviews. Can you tell us about what The Universe Next Door, in a nutshell, for those who don't know the book, you know, uh, really closely, tell us what it's about?
3: Well, it's a we call it a catalog of worldviews,
1: mm-hmm.
3: and uh, that means that we're looking at the perspectives with which people come to their, their lives, the views that they take, the uh, presuppositions that they make about what the world is like. And maybe listing them would be helpful just to get an idea of what we're talking about. Okay. I start out with the Christian worldview, uh, because that's really what the Western world and the United States and uh, the rest of the rest Western world was founded on back in the Middle Ages and uh, the Renaissance and the Reformation and so forth. And then I move to the deism, which is a kind of decayed form of uh, uh, Christian Mm-hmm. He isn't. That mm-hmm. is, it's it's the Christian worldview minus some very important factors, very mm-hmm. important elements. Right. And then uh, the next worldview I discuss is naturalism, which is a further removal of the Christian worldview. Even naturalism is actually based on much of the of what uh, Christi- uh, on much of Christianity. Mm. And then to nihilism, which is the final wind down. Of what happens when you lose, you begin to lose the center of uh, reality and the existence of God. Eventually, you end up in nihilism, and then I look at uh, responses to nihilism in such things as existentialism uh, and uh, turning away from the Western world in some form of Eastern religion, uh, and then finally come up to some later twists in. The dominant university worldview, which is naturalism, mm-hmm. that occurs in postmodernism. So that's basically uh, what it is. There's also, I've neglected to mention, the uh, New Age worldview, mm-hmm. which is a result of a blending of uh, Western naturalism Western and uh, Western Christianity with Eastern mysticism. Wow. So that's essentially what the, the book is about.
1: And it's been, you know, really become a textbook and used, used in colleges and seminaries and even high schools. But it's also a book that's pretty, I mean, if I can just go ahead and put it in, the, in these terms, I could hardly put it down. I mean, when I read, and I think I had, I forget if it was the first or second edition, and I was on my way. I don't know, Jim, if I've told you the story, but I was on the way to lecture to faculty at the University of Pennsylvania on worldviews. And I thought to myself, hmm, I've been meaning to really get into Jim Sire's book for 10, 15 years. <laughs> I'd actually been recommending it without reading it. And I finally decided this: it's now or never. So on the w- plane on the way up, I thought, well, I'll supplement my, my, le- my outline. And I wound up reading almost two-thirds of it on the plane and in the hour or two afterwards. And I wound up scrapping my outline completely. And instead, I, I created a lecture based on your book. Wow! <laughs> and the stu- and the, the faculty loved it, and they said, "Now, what's that book?" And so uh, I've been a, a real fan of the Universe Next Door. I say it's the most important uh, book on apologetics next to the Bible. So, uh, so there's one book that I recommend slightly more. But I do want to just come back here. We have about another minute and a half, two minutes on the, in the segment. If you could just tell us a little bit about the response to the universe next door. I mean, have you heard about people who've been really impacted by it in their own thinking, in their own lives, either here or overseas? I think it's in quite a few foreign editions.
3: Yes, it is. I think uh, 15 or 16 different languages. My goodness. Um, the response has been various. For one thing, an early response was simply a person down in Decatur, Illinois, uh, Finding it in the library, having also already read Francis Schaeffer, uh, re- reads my book, and that's the final door from his uh, doubt and unfaith into belief. And he later later comes in and studies uh, studies philosophy. Wow. The same thing happened in a way uh, in my ministry in Czechoslovakia. A young man who came to a, a meeting at Charles University, and uh, he was one of two people who were not believers. In fact, he was the most seemingly unbeliever of the two, and he's the one who became the believer and later on went to study theology. So there was those personal uh, Hmm. impact. The other impact is that the book immediately got adopted as a textbook in many universities in introductions to philosophy and theology.
1: Well, that's encouraging because, you know, the, the book is written in a way that it can be handed out on a on a university campus. I mean a secular university campus could accept that book straight out as just a good, accurate, full, you know, robust description of each of these major worldviews. And that's so important because and it's been used
3: that way mm, at University of Rhode Island, for mm, instance, mm. and uh other places.
1: Well, and I know that you haven't just sort of, as it were, rested on the achievement of having produced The Universe Next Door. You've done, um, like, a, I don't know, six or seven, eight books in the last uh, dozen or so years. Maybe I'm really underestimating the, the total number, but we want, we want to come back in the next segment and talk about two more really exciting books, uh, Why Good Arguments Often Fail and uh, The Humble Primer. Uh, for apologetics and you'll help me if i'm misquoting the exact titles but you're listening to uh, darwin or design i'm tom woodward meeting over the phone with a great great author a terrific guy by the name of jim sire stay with us
0: Welcome back to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570 and 910 WTBN. Once again, here's the host of Darwin or Design, Dr. Tom Woodward.
1: Welcome back to Darwin or Design. I'm Tom Woodward, your host. I'm the one who pilots the program here at WTBN Radio as we tour through the hyperspace of apologetics and considering evidence that uh, bears on the issue of the existence of God and, of course, course also the credibility of the claims of Jesus Christ uh, to be God's final and authoritative revelation of himself. So we are dealing with uh, not only issues that pertain to scientific data but also the bigger picture the worldview picture the picture of how Christians should present their case apologetics of course is the study that area that studies how Christians can make a uh, explain the reason for the hope that's within them and and derives its inspiration from that great passage in first peter chapter 3 verses 14 through 16. So we have on the phone with us today one of the great apologists of our era, a, an author of many, many books through University Press and perhaps uh, through other media overseas especially, And so we are delighted to have Jim Sire. Dr. James Sire, I know you, uh, Jim, as Jim. Is that okay to address you that way? Absolutely. Okay, I appreciate that. Uh, We've been talking about your award-winning and really classic book, The Universe Next Door, which is mandatory reading, as I always tell audiences when I deal with apologetics, because it explains so clearly, and it's such a winsome, it's fun to read, but you get a tremendous education uh, while you're enjoying it. Uh, the university next door explains the major worldviews; these sets of beliefs and assumptions and heart commitments that really have come to dominate as the major options on the university campuses and really throughout the Western culture generally. But we've also, of course, been hearing about, and I've been reading up on some of your other recent writings, and i wondered, wondering if we could just hop right into a book that I've used as a textbook at Trinity College. About a year ago, I taught a seminar on second, you might say, the second phase of Apologetics, Advanced Apologetics, but I had two students in that course that really had not had the basic course on Apologetics, and both the advanced students and those basic students, all of them loved your new book, which came out just about a year ago, Why Good Arguments Often Fail. Now, I don't have that book in front of me. As I was running out of the class and running into my office to come here, I forgot to grab the book from the shelf. Did I get the title correct?
3: Yes, that's correct. Hmm. Why, why Good Arguments Often Fail.
1: Okay. And tell us a little bit about what inspired the book and what it's like in a nutshell. What is the purpose? What's the big idea of the book uh, as you see it? Well, Tom, uh,
3: contrary to the very kind words that you said about uh, my ministry, uh, I could have titled this book, um, Confessions of a Failed Apologist. <laughs>
1: We're all in that boat, okay. <laughs> We're all learning
3: <laughs> now. The question that rises every time you have these failures is why. Mm-hmm. And so this is really a book about why arguments, even when they are good, uh, don't uh, oftentimes simply do not persuade. Mm. And uh, that brings us back to the very first thing you talked about, and that is the issue of worldviews. And the most significant reason why an argument fails, I think, is the commitment of the person with whom you're uh, discussing things to uh, a view that is so different, so alternate, so opposite, uh, so opposed to Christian faith that it's hard for them to hear the rationality, the reasonability, the uh, uh, attractiveness of uh, the Christian message. Mm.
1: So really, you have to be sensitive to the mental, or you might say, uh, philosophical glasses, the pink or the rose-colored or the green-colored whatever glasses through which they peer at reality. And so uh, what are what are some of the, the discoveries that you made and that you included in this book and why good arguments often fail?
3: Well, one of the things that I try to do is to uh, encourage people to listen to the person who's talking and uh, the person you're dialoguing with and pay attention to what they say and then ask The question behind it, why do you think that? Why do you believe that? And oftentimes, that these preconceptions that they have, it becomes revealed to them that these preconceptions are perhaps not as solidly founded as they thought they were. Hmm. Uh, I'm frequently run into the people who say, well, listen, I don't have to be a Christian to be good. And that raises a whole kind of uh, set of issues. Where then do you get your notion of what the goodness actually is, mm-hmm. and how would you decide that your conception of goodness was really better than somebody else's when you're dealing with an extremely important issue, like, for instance, abortion, or uh, or a war, or justification for incarceration of uh, a criminal? Why is it good to do that and not and not good not to? or why shouldn't they be incarcerated and so forth. So you're trying to look at the foundations on the basis of which other people are disagreeing with you, get beneath them, and try to see if they can be undercut in some way. That doubt can be inserted into their own self-belief. Well,
1: what, what do you say when someone says, well, uh, that's, you know, your Christian faith, that's just fine for you. But uh, we all arrive uh, to our own idea of truth, and so you can have your truth, and I'll have my truth. And, so, and sometimes you'll even say, people will say, there is no absolute truth out, out there at all. And it's even hard to uh, uh, ha- even speak with one another because we have our own language, and, and there's no real common language. So we just create our own truth with our own language system. What do you say when people try to throw you a curveball like that?
3: well it's not really all that much of a curveball it's um, it's going to miss the plate even as it's as it's pitched because the the uh, uh, issues that you have to address for your own belief are issues that if that you can't just take any old view and have it be the way things have it work out and the the uh, question that really one needs to address somewhere along the line and the In your conversation is why do you think what do you think is going to happen to you at death and why do you think that Mm. and some people will say well it depends on what you believe about it Uh, but then if you analyze does your belief say in reincarnation actually guarantee that you're going to be reincarnated does your belief that you're going to cease to exist at death actually mean that that causes you to cease or is there something that lies behind that really is going on, whether you believe it or not? Hmm. And most people will acknowledge that. Uh, oh, ah, uh, hmm. I guess maybe that one—that one has to have an answer, or mm-hmm. at least there has to be a truth or falsity about it. Yep. So it's trying to get moving to move one from the notion of utter relativism to the notion that well, we may not know the answer. But there is one way, and if it is that way, then it can't be the other way.
1: Mm -hmm. And, of course, the issue of what happens to someone, to a human being, when they die, is, as you say so clearly in your book, The Universe Next Door, one of the, I think it was seven key questions that in your, I know you could expand it to, you know, nine or 11 or whatever, but the seven key questions that are hallmarks of any given worldview. So really, anybody... If they if they take one of those major worldviews, will have an answer to the question of what happens to you when you die, or at least some idea, right? Except maybe That's right. Ne- except will, maybe nihilism. They will take
3: a stance of some sort,
1: mm-hmm.
3: and uh, the question is: Is that stance true or
1: mm-hmm. not? And how do you know? And how do you know? Okay, well that really kind of helps people to gingerly face the importance of their own worldview and how to test their worldview. Um, I don't know if you knew uh, Dr. Jim Sires, the one we're interviewing today. We're so privileged to have uh, such an amazingly um, prolific author through InterVarsity Press with us on the phone. But Jim, did you know that my very first talk I ever gave when I was actually in a, my second year, I think it actually was my first year at seminary, my first talk I ever gave was how to test a religious experience. Oh, very good. Yeah, very, that, very difficult. Well, that was my title, and I used. And I'll go ahead and entertain you for a moment. I used as my illustration the group that the, the cult group that was called um, the Divine Light Mission. I don't know if you remember them from Vaguely. the from the 1970s. They had right. a guru, Maharishi G, this little teenage boy that went around and sat on a. A purple satin pillow, and oh, yes. you know, had people you know, a coterie of, of followers, you know, that carried him or whatever. And Been a P-
3: long time since I've heard of him, yes.
1: Well, I think he's passed from the scene, or maybe he's just tucked away in the mountains of India or something. But uh, I asked people to uh, why do, why do you hold to this uh, this cult? And they said, well, because I can actually have visions, divine light. When I press on my gently press on my eyeballs and and say this little prayer, and I said, well, you can actually get the same patterns of interesting colored lights if you just press on your eyeballs without the prayer. Because that's called phosgenes. That's a phenomenon <laughs> that you can cause that is caused by either chemical or mechanical stimulation. Anyway, I don't think the, uh, the students really were wowed by my talk, but it was my first <laughs> attempt to literally to test these kinds of questions. So uh, in, in the book, "Why Good Arguments Often Fail, you and I had an interesting dialogue. Could you just tell a little bit about that? And I think it's really wonderful that you would honor me by printing our, my email in your footnote there.
3: Oh, you mean uh, the the views that we take when we understand our relationship to the arguments for intelligent design? Exactly. And,
1: yes, uh, I, th- I think I think the the audience would would enjoy that.
3: Well, I thought, Tom, you probably wouldn't ask me that. Oh no, I, I think it's
1: wonderful <laughs> because you you and I have slightly different views, but you were uh, kind enough to include you know my own thoughts on the uh at least in the in the end note that it was you really you know did, did a wonderful job of including that. And I really want to talk about that maybe in depth on a later program. We can get into a wonderful kind of uh, airing of, of all the major ideas on that topic. But as we uh, wind up the segment, I want to set the stage for the next segment because, uh, Dr. Sire, you have done a fantastic job not only in helping us to understand how to be a witness, how to present the case for Christ, but literally stepping back and looking at the whole scene— and to set that scene, the big picture scene, I want to really come back, uh, Dr. Sire, and deal with your humble primer in the next segment. Will you be able to stay with us? I will. Okay, great. You're listening to Dr. James Sire, apologist, fantastic author, and a friend of this uh, ministry, the C.S. Lewis Society. We'll be right back on the next segment for some of the most important information you've ever heard on Darwin or design. I'm Tom Woodward.
0: Welcome back to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570 and 910 WTBN. Once again, here's the host of Darwin or Design, Dr. Tom Woodward.
1: Welcome back to Darwin or Design. I'm Tom Woodward, your host, and we have with us today on the program one of my mentors in apologetics, Even though I only finally got to meet him in the mid-1990s, I was for years before that reading his material, especially his classic book entitled The Universe Next Door. This is a book which is really mandatory reading, and we have it on our website. Of course, it's available also at the publisher's website, University Press. I'm sure it's available at all your major Internet distributors as well. And The Universe Next Door is a catalog of worldviews. It, it really walks you through a knowledge, enables you to get an overview of every one of the major philosophical perspectives that are out there in the West Western world, and even in the East. There's a, a chapter on Eastern pantheistic monism, the worldview of Hinduism and, and Buddhism. Uh, but it really comes back to the West. There's a chapter on the New Age movement, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We've been talking about this book already. And we also introduced uh, Dr. Jim Sire's book, Why Good Arguments Often Fail, a book on how to be more effective in communicating your faith to others uh, from another worldview that uh, does not, at this moment, you know, have Christian concepts at their center, and so we want to really move into another exciting book. These are all, at least the the last two, the Why Good arguments, and also the one we're about to bring out now, are re- relatively new books out in the last two or three years. And I believe there's also one on devotional reading through the Psalms. Maybe we can get that into that as well. But uh, Dr. Jim Sire, I thank you for joining us on our program, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the book entitled, A Little Primer on Humble Apologetics.
3: Well, Tom, that book is my uh, basic introduction to a ground-level introduction to what uh, apologetics is all about. Apologetics is a, a kind of mystical term. A lot of people don't know what it means. They May think that it's apologizing for the fact that you believe, but it's not that at all. It's really a defense.
1: Could you elaborate, uh, Doctor Siren, what you mean by a defense?
3: Well, a defense is the word that is used in uh, in First Peter about what we should do when people challenge us about the hope that is within us. We ask about what it is that Peter responded. He said it needs to be done with gentleness, and so I worked through some of the apology or the arguments or the defenses that were given by some of the New Testament writers and came up with a definition that says what I wanted to say. That is a definition that involves the humility that defenses will have and even, for that matter, that uh, offenses should have. That is offensive in the sense of presenting something positive. Uh, What I say is this, that Christian apologetics lays before the watching world such a winsome embodiment of the Christian faith that for any and all who are willing to observe, there will be an intellectually and emotionally credible witness to its fundamental truth.
1: I wish I could memorize that last sentence, and I think I'm going to hereby commit myself to doing so, and Bill Carl is my witness. But, of course, uh, we know that this uh, book, The Little Primer on Humble Apologetics, goes from there, from that point, and explores many more dimensions. Can you just uh, uh, take us through a couple more of those angles, Dr. Sire?
3: Well, one of the things that this is intended to do is to divorce the um, success of an argument from the quality of the pr- presentation, that is, we want to present a credible and emotionally um, viable witness that is not um, that will not give one inch with regard to the truth that we're proclaiming. But we also want to do it in such a way that the effect is a, a positive effect.
1: Hmm. And so, the the fact that we are. Uh, presenting an apologetic argument uh, that we want to be as strong as possible. Uh, we, the, our attitude, and is there an, uh, really a, a fundamental important uh, emphasis on our attitude or just our expectation, or both?
3: Well, both. Uh, I call it a winsome embodiment of the mm-hmm. Christian faith, okay. uh, rather than an offensive or aggressive embodiment of the mm-hmm. Christian faith. That, by the way, is one of the reasons why good arguments often fail. Mm. You may have a very good argument, but come at it, at it in such a, an aggressive manner that mm. people are offended simply by the way you present it. Mm. So you have to combine reason and rhetoric.
1: Right. And I think sometimes I know that uh, in my own struggle to get that right balance of enthusiasm and yet humility, I saw, I think sometimes in my own almost overflowing enthusiasm for some information or, or maybe some new argument, I have a tendency to kind of... Um, come down hard on the other side in a way that, uh, you know, I know I'm right, and I know you're wrong, and I think I'll, this is a trap that Christians can easily fall into. Am I, Do you think that's your perception?
3: Well, yes, it is a trap, and sometimes it's a trap for the whole Christian hmm. community. In, um, in the other book, Why Good Arguments Often Fail, I think that's where I tell the story of uh, a dialogue that I had. I thought it was a dialogue, and it turned out to be billed as a debate at Ball State University, and the debate, the dialogue, as far as I was concerned, went very well. And the professor, an atheist who was uh, dialoguing with me, uh, did too. In fact, he commended not only me, but he commended the you know later letter, yeah. uh, the book, the universe next door. But these Christians in the audience, and there were many of them, they filled up the auditorium. They overflowed to a second, and overflowed into a third mm-hmm. uh, that was done with taping. And the word I got back from almost all the Christians was, they thought I lost the argument. Mm. They thought I was too weak. Well, they had expectations that they really shouldn't have had. Mm-hmm. And uh, I felt very badly about it, but I felt as badly about the uh, um, response of the audience, which although it was completely um, inappropriate, it, uh, there was. No, I, didn't, I didn't lose, I really didn't, mm-hmm. but I played to what I call a draw, which mm. means that you have the uh, two views out there, and people can consider and think about it and make their own choice. And mm. this choice can be made on not a purely emotional basis. Uh, our, uh, our hero won the debate, uh, or some uh, uh, atheist uh, student sitting there and saying, oh my goodness, he won the argument. That's probably not what's going to move the person from unfaith to faith anyway.
1: Mm-hmm. Because your uh, attitudes, I mean, to me, that, the whole question of attitude is so important. But our attitudes are projected not just in maybe, you know, smiles or body language or, you know, the kind of the almost um, things that you sense rather than write down word by word. But also our attitudes can be also couched in the words that we use as we talk to people. And so that's part of the humility angle is to just even not come, come across as I know it and you need to be sitting at my feet, I guess. Is, is that, that's what I'm picking up from what you're saying.
3: Well, Tom, you're the expert on communication. You have the degree <laughs> in that.
1: <laughs> that doesn't mean I know you, that much in practical terms. You
3: tell me. (laughs) Okay.
1: Well, I just, you know, literally, we are talking, if you're just joining the program, Darwin or Design, this is uh, one of our most delightful conversations we've had in many, many uh, programs. We've had some terrific uh, people to interview, but Jim Sire, uh, author of many books uh, on various topics, philosophy, a devotional life, uh, thinking, how to be a thinking Christian, and especially in the area of apologetics. Uh, so, Jim, I, we're just about two minutes, three minutes left in the segment, and I was wondering if you could tell us about your lecture ministry that you had. And, of course, I potentially could still be having that as far as I know. But you have a very unique approach when you deal on the university campus uh, to the question of truth. And I was wondering if you'd tell us, and I think it's still in print, the book that came out of that lecture, uh, what is that strange-sounding lecture, and how do some of the people in the university world respond?
3: The lecture title was given to me by students at Harvard University. Mm. I wanted to lecture on, is Christianity rational? And what they did was to add a whole bunch of other questions, including why Uh, should anyone believe anything at all? And Mm. I looked at that question and I said, that's the question. Mm. And I was dealing with that anyway. I didn't have to change my lecture one bit. So uh, all the future lectures we asked this question, why should anyone believe anything at all? And it was a way in which I could get at the issue of the relativism of truth by demonstrating to the students right there in the audience that they believed in some form of absolute truth, even though they said they didn't. And when I could move them to see that there were some issues that you cannot take a a relative attitude toward, and that they don't, and they are inconsistent if they try, then that opens up the possibility of saying, yes, now here are some good reasons why some of the things that you believe or disbelieve, you should believe or disbelieve, and you know that, and pay attention to how you're thinking, and it will help you.
1: Hmm. So the, the whole issue of why should... Anyone believe anything at all thrusts in front of the, let's say, the student or the professor who's attending that lecture the issue of, why? Or what's the foundation for committing or for actually giving assent to anything? Exactly. And, and, and of course, the there could be sociological reasons and psychological reasons. And my professor told me so; there must be true. Or my parents told me so; and so must be true. Or Facebook told me so; therefore, it must be true. But ultimately, you come down to what answer?
3: Well, the, the only thing that we are looking for in the end is mm. the truth. Okay. And what are keys to understanding the truth?
1: Okay. And, and so, therefore, yeah, I, it's not sociological, but it's really, in a way, philosophical. You believe in something because it happens to be true. Yes. Okay.
3: If you don't, you're foolish.
1: (laughs) Well, committing to the notion that truth really does exist is almost a major step uh, for somebody who's been told, or at least they've had muttered in their ear over and over, there is no truth, there is no truth, there is no truth. So I think this is such a central and basic question. Could you join us uh, for just a few more seconds in the final segment? Yes. Okay. Okay. Very good. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Jim Sire, for uh, being with us, and we'll look forward to some of the best interaction yet on the next segment of Darwin or Design. We'll be right back. I'm Tom Woodward, your host.
0: Welcome back to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570 and 910 WTBN. Once again, here's the host of Darwin or Design, Dr. Tom Woodward.
1: Welcome back to Darwin or Design, a program that probes the borderland between science and the Christian faith and tries to ask the hard questions and probe the new discoveries that are bringing in exciting data information that bears on the question of whether there is indeed a foundational truth, an absolute um, source of truth and source of reality, and an almighty God behind the universe and above the universe and, and involved with the universe, or whether we are the results of mindless processes that did not have us in mind. A quote that really comes from George Gaylord Simpson, the late guru of Darwinian evolution at Harvard University. And, of course, there are some uh, who say, well, God worked through macroevolution. That was his creation. That was his creation system. And I personally, as a young Christian, a brand-new baby Christian on the Princeton campus, held to that view. So um, it was only until much later that I encountered evidence that pointed toward the Creator actually stepping in and doing things in the physical system of the universe that natural processes Uh, however endowed by the creator, that these natural processes could never have pulled off. But we are also engaging week by week on Darwin or design, the issues, the bigger issues of morality, whether there is a moral law in the universe and whether that may also be a source of information about our creator, the one who gave those laws. And also, is there evidence even in the experience of joy, as C.S. Lewis himself said, he had these transcendent moments of almost a painful, joyful, wistful longing for something greater and higher that he just got a glimpse of, and it hit him it was like a thunder strike or a lightning strike of, of a deep, both emotional but almost intellectual joy. And so there are all, all kinds of arguments that are being employed both for and against the Christian worldview. And, of course, this is coming out in many, many books published by both Christians and atheists, but we have with us today one of the premier writers on the topic of Christian theistic belief and why you can be standing on firm ground, why you don't have to, as it were, put your minds in neutral or even shelve your brains to be a Christian. Why, if anything, putting your brains into high gear is that which will uh, very happily and uh, cogently lead you to embrace the Christian faith. Jim Sire, we want to thank you for taking time to spend this hour with us. Um, How is the weather up there in Chicago?
3: Well, it's cloudy, but it's kind of nice. I'm yeah. looking out my window and enjoying
1: it. That's great. Well, it's kind of warm here in Tampa Bay, and of course, uh, we we always tend to have about 20 or 30 degrees on you, but uh, I actually wish I was in your place, and, and uh, <laughs> Bill Carl is emoting and saying, are you crazy? <laughs> <laughs> I think Bill is happy to be here in Florida. But we are so thankful that we have the warmth not only of the Florida sun, but we are both in both your place, uh, Jim, and mine. We have the warmth of the presence of Christ. Tell us a little bit about you your background, how you came to Christian faith, and then how you kind of confirmed it and deepened it in the university world, and and, uh, and I think you have a Ph.D., if I remember, in English, uh, but in that whole pathway of uh, academia, how did you hammer out and confirm your Christian faith?
3: Well, I became a Christian when I was uh, at the beginning of the 7th grade, or between the 6th and 7th. I was raised on a ranch, raised and educated in a one-room country schoolhouse, you know, a little house on the prairie, a little schoolhouse on the prairie as well. And uh, by the seventh grade, we moved to town, and I f- was able to hear uh, ministers every week, and one of these ministers simply uh, each week presented the gospel, and I knew I needed to walk forward, and so at the end of one of his sermons, I just uh, fainted. <laughs> they carried me across the street uh, to where we lived, and uh, my mother, my, my my father, and his uh, one of the elders who helped carry me, uh, said, "Oh, it's hot. He's fainted because it's hot." Uh, I didn't say anything. My, they laid me on the couch. My mother looked, leaned over me, and she said, "Wasn't something the preacher said?" And I said, "Yes, Mama." <laughs> she said, "I thought so." And That was her witness to me. And the next week when a preacher gave the same kind of invitation, I walked forward, and I have really never experienced any serious doubt. Uh, This is a very strange and perhaps awesome thing and perhaps dangerous thing to say. But I've never really perceived any uh, doubt about the truth of the Christian faith. Hmm. often wondered whether I was in the camp or not, but I didn't. uh, I had no doubt that... uh, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Mm. Uh, Whether he was reconciling me or not, that was another issue. Mm. But uh, I I believed from the very beginning and I've never really doubted.
1: That's really interesting. I sometimes have often thought, I'm a little bit weird because uh, once I came through my own struggle, I had a six-month intense struggle in at Princeton University, where I was meeting with some students and graduates, and they were reasoning with me, and I was sort of fighting it and debating them and, and finally listening to them and listening to Scripture. And after I uh, put my trust in Christ as the one who both had, had died for me, as prophesied in Isaiah 53, but had it, but it also been raised uh, to life and, and really put trust in Him, um, I, I guess I never looked back either, and even though I've had struggles of all kinds, I've never really Uh, had any serious doubt. What really struck me, uh, Dr. Jim Sire, is that once I came to faith, uh, I just kept finding more and more and more and more lines of evidence, more convergence. I like the word convergence, lines that keep converging on the same, wow, this really is true after all. And I know that in your book... the uh, the one that comes out of your lecture series, you know, why should anyone believe anything at all? You really talk about the truth of Christianity to some extent as rooted on what the disciples experience in this amazing person, Jesus of Nazareth. Can you tell us a little bit about, I mean, if someone were inquiring today and say, well, God's existence, yes, but Christianity, oh, come on, you know, get over it. There's no possibility that a man really was raised from the dead. What would, what would you say to someone who says, he, that's just totally incredible?
3: Well, the evidence for the Christian faith that I think is actually the strongest is, in fact, the evidence that comes and circulates around Jesus himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have, the, uh, on the first level, we have the existence of a testimony to such a person as Jesus Christ. The question is, if you're going to ask us apologetically, the question is, why should I trust this text? Well, the reason for trusting the text is wrapped up in the text itself. Read the text first, see what the text says, and then ask yourself, how could this text have been written? Uh, How did it come to be written the way it is written? Uh, You have the presentation of a a Jesus who claims to be uh, the Son of God and who claims to be able to uh, mediate God to us. Why in the world should we believe a story like that? And the tie together with the character of Christ and with the story that is told, the most reasonable explanation for the very existence, for instance, of the Gospels is that there was, in fact, a man named Jesus Christ who did the sorts of things that the text itself claims that he did. Mm. So that's uh, I want to see have people meet the most powerful embodiment of the truth of God and to beat that powerful person, they will be met in the Scripture or with stories from the Scripture. Mm. And they'll be met in the Scripture, I think, better than any story that I could tell.
1: And I re- I'm struck by the um, the memory of what Dr. John Suppy at, uh, at the geology department, chairman, I think, in the early 90s at uh, Princeton University. Uh, Jim, have you heard his story of his encounter? I
3: haven't heard his story, but I've been in his... Uh, in his
1: uh, living room. Oh, wow. Okay, so you know who I'm referring to, a member of ASA, a great guy. I do indeed. Yes. Well, John Suppy uh, was walking uh, past the Princeton University Chapel over a number of uh, weeks and months. He just recently arrived from Yale, young professor of geology there on the Princeton campus. And uh, I'll make the story short. But what happened is he, over a period of time, was curious and began sitting down now and then in the back row, just kind of snuck in when no one was looking. And uh, sat down the back row and he heard, well, at one point a lady uh, who was preaching that day, a guest lecturer, guest preacher, a lady said, well, you know, many of you students are at the college of your choice. Many of you professors are world leaders. You know, you know more than anybody in the world about your field of study, except maybe a handful of people. And yet many of you don't come up to the kindergarten level in your knowledge of the Bible. And when he said that, uh, when she said that, it struck him like an arrow. And he thought to himself, that's me. He had never read the Bible. So he actually got a New Testament, started reading it uh, in the book of Mark, and was trying to tear out and, and mentally cut out the miracles. And he realized that, hey, the story doesn't make sense with the miracles cut out that way. And about a month later, he was back. They were celebrating the Lord's Supper. And before the elements were passed, the, the sermon or the, the pastor said, the, the chaplain said, you know, Jesus said to me, come you that labor and are heavy late, and I will give you rest. And John Suppy bowed his head and he said, I don't know what I'm doing exactly, but I know that I trust you now. So it was his encounter, again, with the risen Christ, but through reading, literally encountering um, the um, arguments, but encountering them through the person of Christ, you know, in, in a personal, bio, biographical, but a living kind of encounter that he he uh, led him on to his own personal faith. Uh, Dr. Jim Sire, if you were going to say that there was one or two uh, really great, great um, passages that a, a person that's checking out Christianity maybe a chapter or even a book in the Bible. Where would you send them first?
3: Oh, that's hard, Tom. I don't know what my most favorite book is. <laughs>
1: okay.
3: But but no, <laughs> I'm an English teacher and I should know.
1: Oh, how about how about uh, just in this encounter with Christ? I mean, would you send them to Mark or John or? That's right. Okay. Okay, Mark <laughs> and John is Mark or John? Okay, okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us, uh, Jim Sire, author of Universe Next Door, Why Good Arguments Often Fail, uh, A Little Primer on Humble Apologetics, and many, many other books that have ministered to me and ministered to the Church of Jesus Christ. Uh, thanks so much, uh, Doctor Jim Sire, for joining us. Thank you, Tom. Okay, have a great afternoon in Chicago. Bye. Well, it's been great to have. Jim Sire, uh, one of my intellectual heroes, one of the great apologists of our time on the program. Bill, what did you think? Wasn't that a, an experience to have a, a, a guy who not only is intellectually at the top of his game, but who has that winsome, that genuine, that uh, joy-fulfilled kind of life that really uh, lets us see Christ here in the year 2008?
2: Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. I didn't sense a, as much of an agenda as I did uh, just a concern and a love and, uh, and a desire to uh, appeal to people's intellect and their hearts. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the more enjoyable guests that I think that uh, we've had in my time with you. Yeah.
1: Well, we need to make a, a habit to have Jim Sire back as a commentator. I mean, he, he has such wisdom on so many topics of you know morality and philosophy and arts and apologetics. His, uh, his other book, he just came up with a book not too long ago uh, called Reading a Reading through the Psalms. Reading through the Psalms. He's also an expert, by the way, on cults. One of his earliest books was called Scripture Twisting. Scripture twisting. Now, I've
2: seen a, reviews on that, and mm-hmm. apparently, really impacted a lot of people's lives. And mm-hmm. and so we're it have did to pick up the book on the Psalms it, too.
1: It did. And you know, I I really think that uh, we we really need to make the most. Uh, Doctor Sire has lectured at Trinity College, and so we will try to, as it were, highlight not only what he's writing, but really make him a regular guest. I know that he would be happy to do so. Well. One of the things that we try to do each week is to highlight our own resources to deal with the areas of apologetics that this program emphasizes. And, of course, you can always contact the C.S. Lewis Society if you want personal uh, interaction. We'd be glad to answer your questions. I enjoy so much uh, talking on the phone or receiving even emails from people who listen to the program, and you can even make suggestions as to topics, raise a question. We want to try to get some local uh, teachers of Darwinian evolution on the program, even have maybe a bit of a discussion or even a debate in coming weeks. But we want to thank you for making this program such a joy to bring to you each week. Uh, Lift us up in your prayers. Uh, Give us a call and we can send you a copy of that amazing DVD, Unlocking the Mystery of Life. And, of course, always try to spread the word. Tell others about Darwin or design. And we will be so happy to have them welcomed to our program each and every week on WTBN. I'm Tom Woodward. See you next week.